Okay, so we had a couple more people join. Um, so we can go ahead and get started. So Kaya, if you could just introduce yourself, um, that would be great. Um, and before we get started, I'm just gonna pray for our time, but we're so thankful to have you present among us today. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, so let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to learn about this history that is so difficult about Christianity and slavery and race and their intersections. God, would we listen when we need to listen? Would we um, be convicted as we need to be convicted? Would we lament as you lead us to lament? And thank you for Kaya. Uh, thank you for her research in this area. Thank you for her life. Would you bless her as she gives this presentation? Um, would you speak through her and in her? Um, thank you for her life and her ministry. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, I just wondered if you put that on the Take sink. it away. And then uh, let's just have everyone make sure to mute themselves. Thank you. And then go ahead and take it away, Kaya. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I am Kaya Mangram. I am a um, professor, assistant professor at Westmont College in the Department of English. Um, my research generally is in African-American literature and culture and 19th century U.S. literature and culture and visual culture. Um, this, this project is a second project or the beginnings of a second book project um, in which I'm interested in the representation of uh, slavery and Christianity in the long 19th century, which goes from maybe the 1780s through, the 19, uh, through 1914. Okay, I'll just go ahead and get started. So I'm gonna turn off my video um, just to make sure that I save bandwidth. Can you all still see the um, PowerPoint? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, the title of my talk today is called Of One Blood, Slavery and Christianity in the US. Um, so I'm gonna be kind of giving two snapshots of the abolitionist movement. Uh, the first is the early abolition movement. I'm gonna focus a lot on the 1780s and 1790s. I'm gonna be looking at the kind of transoceanic exchange between the United States and Britain. And then the second uh, snapshot is of abolition in, in the United States during the 19th century. Um, I'm gonna be going there. Why can I hear? What? Okay. I can't hear, I said, why can't I hear? Okay. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. um, I think somebody has their, their uh, speaker on or their microphone on. Um, so the, the second snapshot, I'm going to be going from the 1820s, 1830s in the US, all the way up until the Civil War in 1865. Uh, so sometimes abolitionists will talk about this, not abolitionists, scholars of abolition will talk about this as the second wave of the movement. Okay. Um, so there's five takeaways I want to uh, give us today. Um, the first is the work of abolitionists happen in community and via networks. Um, we have sometimes I think in pop culture, the representation of this lone hero who all by themselves, right, activated ab abolition. I'm thinking here of the way we talk about and think about William Lloyd Garrison and people like, um, um, Wilberforce, right? Um, but what I want to suggest is that really the way we should be thinking about um, abolition was in terms of people working in community and people working in networks. Uh, the second thing is abolition was sometimes, but not always, paired with uh, conversations and activist efforts towards Black civil rights. Um, so this is often for, can, can you guys hear me? Okay. Okay, um, this is often for um, black civil rights activists. They're going to be thinking about abolition. Uh, free black people, for example, are gonna be thinking about the fate of enslaved people as being intertwined with their own fate. Um, and formerly enslaved people who are fighting for abolition are going to understand that their continued freedom from enslavement is dependent on civil rights. 
So often those two things are going to be um, working together, those two movements, overlap. Um, abolition was spurred by the work of anti-slavery activists, speakers, artists, writers, and philanthropists. Um, but it was also spurred by the individual and organized resistance of enslaved Black people. When we think of abolitionists, we might think of abolitionists being a free person. Um, especially in pop culture, we might think of abolitionists being free white people. Um, but what I want to argue today, one of the things I want to argue today is that Enslaved Black people themselves were abolitionists, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and finally, I want to spend some time thinking about how Christians, Christianity, and the Bible were at the center of not only anti-slavery activism and arguments, but also pro-slavery activism and arguments. Okay, so um, what were some of the arguments in support of the transatlantic slave trade and transatlantic slavery. Um, oh, uh, uh, just a very brief note. So there have been global histories of slavery in every continent continent um, since human civilization has been recorded, right? We've had slaveries in Africa, we've had slaveries in Asia and Europe, right? Um, in the Americas. Um, but what I want to kind of focus our attention on is the ways in which transatlantic slavery and the transatlantic slave trade were unique and that they were global systems um, that were predicated on race and racialization, which I'll talk a little bit more uh, about later. Um, but what were some of the arguments in support of this particular slavery? Oops, oops, why? Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, so when people wanted to argue to keep slavery, um, and grow it, really. Um, they would say that slavery was the economic cornerstone of our nation and or of our empire. Um, this argument was very popular in the 1780s and 1790s in Britain, for example. Um, you'd have a lot of people who would make arguments that the British Navy depended on uh, the slave trade in order to train young British sailors on how to be good seamen. Um, and people would make arguments that, well, if you got rid of this nursery of the great British Navy, um, our, our kind of military might would be weakened. Uh, other people would make arguments that uh, the money, the wealth that is generated by the trade and by slavery, um, if we gave this up, if we abolished the slave trade and or uh, slavery, we wouldn't have the money to be such a mighty military power and we would be putting ourselves in uh, danger um, with other nations, right? So this was a very popular argument throughout the history of transatlantic slavery, um, but you find it being used more often uh, earlier in the trade. Uh, slavery has existed in all societies throughout human history. Um, so I found that this argument is, is pretty popular throughout um, the period I'm looking at, which is 1780s through 1860s, you'll find pro-slavery thinkers in 1780s using it as much as uh, people who used it later. Uh, slavery is inevitable given the innate biological differences between the races, right? This, this white supremacist idea that black people were inherently inferior and white people were inherently superior, that these differences between the races were both natural, biological, um, and served a purpose. Um, this argument was pretty popular, I think, um, in the mid 19th century, especially in the US. People were flirting with these ideas before then, um, but I think with the rise of kind of scientific racism in this 1820s, 30s, and 40s, uh, this argument becomes pretty, pretty kind of prevalent in US spaces by uh, the time we get to the Civil War in 1861. Um, slavery in the US was less cruel than the slavery of other places. This is an argument that you hear, um, especially in the antebellum US, and slavery was ordained by God. Um, so this particular argument is one that we're going to spend a little bit more time on today. Okay. So what were some of the arguments against slavery and the slave trade? What were some of the arguments that abolitionists were making? Um, 
tethered to the colonization of the Americas and the dispossession of native peoples in the Americas, slavery was an extremely profitable global economic system, right? Um, so anti-slavery thinkers would, would say to their interlocutors, um, you know, this is all about mammon and filthy lucre, right? Um, you, you care more about money than you do about people. Um, this system was extremely profitable for, for many slaveholders and slave traders, um, but slavery as a system degraded the value of free white labor, right? So if you're going to have all, all these laborers who can work for free and can work until they die and their children can work for free and until they die, um, you know, where does that leave free white laborers? Um, unlike other forms of global slavery, transatlantic slavery was unique in that it was racialized. Um, if we think, for example, about slavery in a place like Rome, um, there were people of different ethnicities who were enslaved by people of other ethnicities, but you know, a, a slaveholder might look very much like the person they're enslaved. Um, these differences between people were based on um, something closer to national identity and ethnic identity than they were to something like race. Um, and what that looked like in practice is, um, you know, if I was a Roman slaveholder, I, you know, own this person because they're a prisoner of war from this um, conquered nation or this conquered territory. And you know, their ethnicity is, is accompanying that, but it's not the primary reason they're enslaved. Um, for transatlantic slavery, the primary reason that people come to be enslaved is because of uh, their race. Um, since enslaved people were constructed uh, not only as property, but also as movable capital, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, a, a 19th and 20th century intellectual, describes this as real estate, right? Um, so if I am a 19th century, mid 19th century US slaveholder, and I find myself in economic straits. I could sell my enslaved person and buy myself out of those economic straits. Um, and people did do that a lot. And so what you find is that enslaved people, unlike other kinds of slaveries at other times and in other places, are being treated more like uh, real estate, like property, like things, as interchangeable with cash um, than in other systems. And what this leads to is the kind of large scale breakup of black families, um, as well as the um, kind of tragedy of the Middle Passage, um, the movement of millions of enslaved people from the West Coast of Africa to the Americas. Um, and the teachings of the Bible and Christianity disavow slavery, right? So it's like, what's going on? Um, Pro-slavery people say, hey, the Bible allows it. And, um, Anti-slavery people say, no, the Bible says that this is wrong. Um, okay, um, so I wanna kind of focus in on the title of the book. Um, in my second book project, all of my thinking about Christianity and slavery is kind of connected to how we got to where we are now, basically, <laughs> um, how it is in the 21st century, we could have, um, committed Christians making arguments about social justice that are at the opposite ends, right? Um, some people are saying, well, you know, the way we're, we're imagining social justice is unbiblical, whereas some people are saying, you know, the, actually um, this social justice mandate is what God requires of us. I wanted to understand how we got to this point. But because I'm a 19th century scholar and I stop around 1915 in my research, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be researching how people after the Civil War talked about and imagined the relationship between race, religion, and how people thought about what the war meant, what slavery meant. Um, this quote, is, for me, it is uh, kind of reminiscent of a novel written by a Black woman named Pauline Hopkins. Um, and in the novel, she makes an argument about um, the kind of Christian mandate, right, to remember slavery as theft and to remember the war as righting centuries long wrongs. Um, this is also a scripture from Acts 17. Uh, God has made of one blood all peoples of the earth. 
Um, and acts will come up again a little later. Uh, I hope I'm not talking too fast. I have so many things to, I want to say. All right, um, so I'm gonna first start with that, that first wave of abolition, which you know, begins in the 18th century, begins in the 1700s uh, with the work of uh, Quakers. Uh, one Quaker that I really, really love, his name is Benjamin Lay. Um, and Benjamin Lay was a um, man, if, I don't know. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about him. And if you're feeling him, you can read Marcus Redeker's book on <laughs> Benjamin Lay. Um, but, but Benjamin Lay was a Quaker dwarf who was born in England. Um, and he got himself thrown out of a lot of Quaker meetings uh, because he was very resistant to what he felt was hypocrisy in the faith. Um, a lot of times this was around the issue of slavery. At one point after getting thrown out of multiple meetings, uh, he says, uh, no, he, he has this kind of um, performance activism, right? Where he goes in to the meeting, he's wearing a cloak, and in the cloak, he's got a little pouch with, with pig's blood. Um, and then he takes a knife and then stabs himself with the pig's blood and, and commences to give a, an impassioned speech against slavery. Of course, he's, he's picked up, thrown out, gets thrown out of that meeting as well. Um, yeah, he's pretty awesome. So if you, if you wanna hear more about Benjamin Lay, um, you can look at Marcus Redeker's book on him. Um, Redeker's R-E-D-I-K-E-R. -E um, so we have these early abolitionists who are doing work in this, uh, the mid 1700s in the United States. Um, so there's Benjamin Lay and there's also people like um, uh, Anthony Benizet. Um, But when we get to this question of kind of organized reformist or, or kind of like uh, people who are working uh, in conjunction with one another to organize activism. Uh, but one of the first movements was 1785 in Britain. The group was called the Sons of Africa. Um, now this is kind of uh, going back to one of my takeaways. We often think of uh, white abolitionists working solo as like the kind of picture, the, the archetype of abolition. Um, but I was, um, really surprised to find, and people have not done a lot of work on the Sons of Africa, um, so I'm really excited about learning more about them. Uh, they were actually doing this kind of collective activism work two years before one of the more famous um, anti-activist organizations, S-E-A-S-T, uh, the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. So the Sons of Africa were doing work even before uh, one of the more famous ones that led to uh, change in the British Parliament. So the Sons of Africa were men of African descent, some of whom themselves had been kidnapped from their homelands and enslaved. Um, and these men wanted to abolish slavery. Um, and they also wanted to provide humanitarian relief for British Black people who, although free, uh, were subjected to racism and ostracization um, and many people were languishing in poverty. Um, so the, these men would uh, organize relief efforts for those folks. Um, two of the, the kind of leading figures of the Sons of Africa uh, was Alado Equiano and Otaba Kuguano. Um, they both had English names, but I'm using their African names. Uh, both men wrote autobiographies of their lives in slavery and freedom. Um, and these autobiographies were widely read at the time. Um, so one thing I think abolitionists were concerned about is that that kind of uh, pro-slavery argument that ah, slavery is not that bad, um, kind of combined with the, the kind of pro-slavery argument, ah, Black folks are, are inferior. They feel differently than us, right? So what these men in their autobiographies do is they show, yes, slavery was that bad, and yes, it hurt Black people immensely. <laughs> um, there's one story in his autobiography that strikes me, um, that kind of breaks my heart more than any of the stories of kind of whipping or, or physical assault. Um, he is being brought from the inland of, inland Africa, how, how do I say this? So as we, as the 
African slave trade becomes more profitable and the desire for enslaved people becomes uh, more pronounced, slave traders are moving further inland. Um, and so he, um, like so many millions, had to march across land for weeks, months, until he got to the coast. So um, once he gets very close to the coast, he re-encounters his sister who was also kidnapped with him at the same time. And when he does, they, they kind of hold each other and cry all night before they're pulled apart for the rest of their lives. Um, Equiano was a child when he was kidnapped around um, 10 or 11, I always forget. Um, and in his autobiography, he does a very strange thing with typeface. This is the only time he does it in 400 pages of his autobiography. He does an indentation um, and then he uh, uses italics and he addresses his sister directly, right? And in this direct address to his sister, he says how much he wishes that he could save her from the unique tortures that he knows that she will endure um, and kind of abiding by the um, proprieties of the time. He doesn't explicitly say, um, as a black enslaved woman, I know that you will be subjected to rape and sexual assault. But what he's saying is, I know that is going to happen to you and I wish I could spare you from it but I cannot, and I want you to know that I love you. It, I, it just breaks my heart every time, right? So what we find in, in these autobiographies is that black folks are um, trying to refute this, these racist lies that, oh, it's not so bad, and uh, black people are kind of built for slavery, and therefore they don't feel pain like other people do. So um, Equiano, and, and this is where the networks come into, Play. So Equiano is a part of the Sons of Africa, but he's also having conversations with white abolitionists. Uh, for example, he brought the uh, Zong massacre, which was a, a case of insurance fraud in one way and um, one of the most despicable acts of, of inhumanity in another. Um, so there was a ship called Zong, a Dutch ship. And when you translate Zong, it translates into, I think it's care. I think the word is care. Um, and the Zong found itself with sailors who were not very well trained, not enough sailors. Um, and they said, they claimed that they didn't have enough water, although there's, there's some doubt as to whether that was true or not. Um, all we do know is that they threw over 130 people overboard while those people were alive um, and then made a claim for the insurance company um, so that they could get the money back. And um, this case kind of started a conversation among parliamentarians and white abolitionists and it's Equiano who brought this um, activism work to the forefront. Um, I'm gonna skip this for the sake of time, but this, this quote is just another instance in which uh, black writers who, the, who were themselves enslaved find themselves uh, witnessing the suffering of other enslaved people, not only based on the physical pain that they will endure, um, but on the emotional pain that they suffer. Okay, so Ceased. Uh, Ceased was created in 1787. Uh, it stands for the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade and a group of men, all of whom were are dedicated to abolition uh, came to the conclusion that it might be um, more useful to begin with the slave trade, to say, hey, we're gonna abolish the slave trade and then we'll start to try to abolish slavery. Um, prominent leaders were Thomas Clarks Clarkson and Josiah Wedgwood. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll focus only on Clarkson. Um, so Thomas Clarkson was an interesting figure in that as a young man at Cambridge, he uh, wrote an essay and this essay was, uh, it was a for a prize. And the question was, is it moral to keep people enslaved? He won the essay because he's a good student, very smart. Um, and he found himself walking to, um, you know, deliver the essay and get his prize. He was walking from, I think, London to Cambridge, Cambridge to London, I always mix that up. Um, and he, he 
he starts to think to himself, self, if what I wrote and what I researched is true. And here he's, he's looking at the work of people like Anthony Benizet and kind of all these, these kind of early uh, 18th century folk. Um, he says, self, if this is true, then I must do something about it. And he commits his life to abolition. Um, it's this kind of a Saul on the road to Damascus moment where his entire life changes. Um, he had trained to be a minister, but instead kind of dedicates his life to full-time activism and anti-slavery work. Uh, he does a lot of collecting of information um, as a part of the work he does in the early years. He interviews hundreds and hundreds of sailors. Um, as a kind of a elite young white male, he didn't want to interview sailors. He wanted to interview captains and um, slave ship owners, but they would not talk to him. And actually he, he is pretty much sure that uh, these folks sent people to kill him. He was almost murdered by uh, five, five thugs who uh, tried to throw him into the uh, water in Liverpool when he was doing this work. So he ends up talking to common sailors to uh, gather the information and uses all of that to create two of the most uh, successful visual propaganda pieces of certainly the 18th and 19th centuries, but probably in all of activism maybe. Um, one is the slave ship Brooks, which has all these little tiny figures are enslaved people. Um, and very different from the autobiographies of Cuguano and Equiano, right? The enslaved people are, are there's no voice. <laughs> um, so there's, I think a way in which these visual images Right, although very effective, they don't transmit as much information about the the, uh, the cost of enslavement for enslaved people themselves. Um, this one here, Am I Not a Man and a Brother? Uh, it's when I was in England doing research about this image, I noticed that there were three forms of punctuation one had a, a period, one had a question mark, and one had an exclamation mark. Right, and in all these ways, right, we see. Uh, the ways in which Black people's voices are made um, kind of incoherent or unstable or silenced. And I'll stop there because I haven't even gotten to the second wave. Okay, all right. So um, Angelina Grimke and Theodore Well, um, and um, I wanna tell you that all the people that I'm highlighting here are committed Christians. Uh, Grimke and Weld are very interesting. Grimke, as a young woman, she grew up in a slave-holding household, very wealthy slave-holding family. And she found herself, as a thinking woman, um, scared for her brothers, scared for her, their souls. Um, she understood that to be an enslaver, one had to make certain kinds of um, moral equivalences. One had to engage in brutality. Um, and she was afraid that slavery would take her brothers away from God. Um, she later just comes to a wholesale rejection of slavery as a way that Christian people can live, um, gives up her kind of status as a slaveholding woman, a high status for a woman, uh, moves north um, and becomes an abolitionist. <laughs> so another kind of like Saul on the road to Damascus moment where her life is, is totally transformed. Now she becomes a speaker on the uh, anti-slavery circuit. Um, she becomes a writer and she meets this dude, uh, Theodore Weld. And Theodore Weld is a really interesting character because he was at, um, oh my gosh, sorry, I, my brain. Lane Seminary, haha. Uh, Lane Seminary in Ohio. Um, and Lane Seminary was a, uh, a, the kind of seminary of the West. So that was as far West as the United States was at the time. Um, and Theodore Weld went there with many young men, uh, elite white young men, um, many of whom were slaveholders. And somehow Theodore Weld convinced these slaveholding young men uh, to give up their inheritances and become abolitionists. Um, of course, this was not a very attractive thing for the president of Lane um, because some of these young white male abolitionists were uh, being accused of spiriting people across the, the border to Canada, uh, which was an illegal act, right? Helping fugitives to escape to 
um, to freedom. Uh, they're passing out uh, petitions, they're writing, they're passing out pamphlets, right? And the president is concerned that this will uh, threaten the school's kind of uh, sovereignty and threaten their financial situation because donors might not want to give money to the school involved in these kind of radical actions. Um, and Weld is told to stop it. And Weld says, no, I will not, and leaves with, <laughs> with some other young men uh, to, to start Oberlin College. Um, so Grimke and Weld, they fall in love. And when I was in the archives, Weld's writing is terrible. And uh, Grimke would kind of rib him about it. She's like, oh, darling, you have to work on your handwriting. Um, but in their writing, there's like two themes that came up for me over and over that stood out to me. Their love for each other and their absolute commitment to God and abolition, right? So they're thinking of their abolitionist um, commitments as being um, intertangled with uh, love for God and, and love for each other. So much so that there's an apocryphal story uh, that Grimke um, had a little purse at her wedding and the little purse at her wedding had the figure of the kneeling slave that I showed you earlier. All right, so I'm gonna kind of move into a conversation about pro-slavery thinking from Christians. Um, DeBose Review was a, a journal, yeah, a journal. It was a journal <laughs> in which uh, enslavers would share best practices about how to um, maintain slavery, how to um, maintain obedient enslaved people. Uh, we will find that throughout the history of transatlantic slavery, this is a problem from, for slaveholders over and over again um, because black people keep resisting, right? So we have these contradictions, right? Oh, people are inherently biologically made to be enslaved, um, but we also have to work really, really hard to keep them there because they keep breaking tools. They keep running away. They keep um, doing all these things that are problematic for us as slaveholders who wanna maximize our economic, uh, our profit, right? So uh, DuBose Review is, is all about how to be better slaveholders and DuBose writes in 1850, a very large party in the United States believes that holding slaves is morally wrong. This party founds its belief upon precepts taught in the Bible and takes that book as the standard of morality and religion. We also look to the same book as our guide in the same matter, yet we think it right to hold slaves, do hold them, and have held them and used them from childhood. Um, I have a very brief video I'd like to screen. I hope I can pull this off. Okay, don't worry, I, I think I can. Let's see, it's a two minute video. Um, and in it, the the scholar answers the question, how did Christian slaveholders justify slavery? Um, and this is uh, Dr. Susan Wise Bauer. Okay. Can you all hear that? What the Christian slaveholders, and I say Christian slaveholders with quotation marks around it, I think we all have to. So I think that that she she gives a really prescient like uh, read of this, but I don't agree with her quotation marks because a lot of the pro-slavery thinkers who were Christians were pretty committed Christians. If we um, talk about committed as being uh, theologians and ministers and going to church every Sunday, Right, these, these were not um, people who imagined themselves as name only Christians. So I, I would, I disagree with her quotation marks. <laughs> to keep that in mind, what the Christian slaveholders did with their Bibles was to take Paul's descriptions of the New Testament world, slaves obey your masters, which was descriptive of the state of life, and to take that as prescriptive. Therefore, masters may have slaves and slaves must obey in all situations. So this was a type of literal interpretation and they could claim 
that they were being faithful to scripture, that they were interpreting scripture literally. Now, of course, to do that, they had to ignore all of the minor prophets and everything that was said in the Old Testament about social justice. And so, of course, it was a very selective literalism, which we still see in Christianity today at times. So it was a principle of interpretation which was good, but the principle was distorted in order to support slavery. And those people who are not able to see their own desire for power, their own desire for domination, take these powerful principles and twist them in order to keep that power. And this is what we see in the slaveholders. They could not recognize that their interpretation of scripture was tied to their own wealth, their own prosperity, their own desire to maintain power. They were so blinded by it. And Bauer, um, author of the history of the ancient world. So I'm gonna stop sharing that and go back to my screen with the PowerPoint on and get down here. I'll try to talk a little faster. Okay. I think I'm going to try to uh, limit uh, myself to uh, maybe eight more minutes. Uh, okay. So we can have time for questions. Okay, this is a photograph of the most photographed man of the 19th century. Um, I, uh, four or five years ago, thought it was Abraham Lincoln. Right, but it is this man, a formerly enslaved, uh, mixed race, black and white uh, writer, orator, theorist, abolitionist, and civil rights activist. His name is Frederick Douglass. Um, Douglass was also an advocate for women's rights. And um, the, here's another instance in which we have this idea of the lone abolitionist hero um, who saves himself from slavery. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, critics in the last 20 years have been, you know, looking at the ways in which Frederick Douglass depended on community um, to make himself free and to uh, grow his, his activism. Um, one thing that people kind of bring up now in relationship to how he got free is that his, uh, the woman who would become his wife, a free black woman uh, named Anna, uh, actually helped him to escape. Um, so Frederick Douglass is a committed Christian. Uh, there were some folks, especially his primary biographer, who made the, the, uh, the comment that Douglass was pretending to be a Christian for like kind of rhetorical clout, that all of his attestations of Christianity were just um, to gain, you know, sense of legitimacy for a mostly Christian reading population. Um, but Recently, David Blight uh, published a, a book which kind of really, really rejects that idea. Um, and, you know, Frederick Douglass said it himself <laughs> in 1845, right? Um, he said, you know, there are some people who would make the argument that uh, I am against Christianity, and it's not Christianity I'm against. What I'm against is the slaveholding religion, right, that it kind of takes the place of Christianity. And I'll, I'll use his own words here. Between the Christianity of this land, meaning the United States, and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land, meaning the United States. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Um, and again, in this, this second project, I'm really interested in uh, correcting two things that I've seen in my field. Um, so the first thing is the ways in which black abolitionists, especially the most famous ones, their kind of religious commitments and their commitments to Christianity are downplayed. Um, like that biographer did when he just said that Douglas was just, you know, using Christian rhetoric to make himself a more believable interlocutor. Um, I believe black people of the 19th century when they said they loved the Lord and their activism was driven by it. Um, so that's, that's one intervention I hope to make. 
And then the second intervention I hope to make is I find that the, um, the kind of Christianity of slaveholders is um, either ignored or those Christian slaveholders are imagined as, you know, not real Christians. Um, and I, I think, yes, yes, their Christianity is flawed. But when we think of the role that they played in their society, these were the well-respected Christians. These were not, uh, for example, people on the, the margins, uh, people who we might consider to be in, in kind of quasi-Christian denominations. Uh, these are the, the, the kind of primary well-respected mainstream of Christianity who were holding these pro-slavery groups. Um, so those are two interventions I hope to make. Okay, as I wrap up uh, very quickly, um, I wanna kind of note how in 1851, we have the publication of a novel um, called Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was published serially in a Christian newspaper. And this novel kind of transformed the way people thought about slavery throughout the 1850s. Um, there's an apocryphal saying that Abraham Lincoln said to Harriet Beecher Stowe when he met her, uh, so you're the little woman who started this big war. Um, and in Stowe's book, Stowe makes many kind of very convincing uh, pro, excuse me, anti-slavery arguments. Stowe makes many convincing anti-slavery arguments. In fact, it's almost like she takes my little pro-slavery list I gave you at the end and refutes them over and over again with different illustrations and different examples. Um, one thing I find though is that uh, her book and scholars are talking more and more about this her book is not anti-racist, it's anti-slavery, but not anti-racist. So like many of the God-fearing uh, people of her time, uh, still found herself buying into racist tropes and racist imagery. And the racist tropes and imagery that um, she kind of represents or illustrates gets picked up by uh, pro-slavery thinkers and they use it to kind of uh, make fun of Black people, right? So it's this kind of really fascinating uh, misusage, right, of the book's purpose. The book's purpose is to argue against slavery, uh, but because of the anti-racist tropes and how prominent they were, uh, you find that pro-slavery people are picking it up uh, to say, yeah, see, see how, for example, see how how uh, degraded uh, these black characters are. Uh, of course, they deserve slavery. And if you want to find out more about that, I can talk more about it in question and answers. And I'm going through this so fast. Um, so this is um, in DuBose again, our favorite magazine. Um, a white woman writer um, writes, uh, Mrs. Stowe says that the cause of all wrong and in itself, the chief wrong in the catalog of sins against the Negro is the prejudice of caste, the antipathy of race, the feeling that we Southern white slaveholders crush into their souls that they are, quote, nothing but inwards. This is assuming that we are the sole cause of their degradation and forgetting the fact that their maker created them nothing but inwards. And here um, the writer means by their maker, God. And that emancipation never can whiten those black skins or elevate those weak intellects. All right, so this kind of pushback against Stowe well, you're saying that we, the slaveholders, are the reason um, that Black people feel themselves oppressed by slavery. Um, rather, you should blame their God who made them slaves. Um, okay, so I wanted to end on a, a positive note. Um, so Harriet Tubman was a formerly enslaved woman. And she was also an abolitionist, a speaker, a civil rights activist. Uh, she was also a person who was... Uh, like uh, called the Moses of her people because of her work on the Underground Railroad. She saved herself from slavery by running away, um, but then went back dozens of times to help other people run away. Um, and one of her most uh, renowned acts of going back into the slave South to spirit people North is the Cumbahee River Raid. Um, you, you may, not have heard of this. I had not heard of it um, before maybe six or seven years ago. 
Um, but during the Civil War, Harriet Beecher Stowe has given a battalion of Union soldiers. Um, and in that, she becomes the first woman uh, to lead Union soldiers into an action. And she and these soldiers literally go into uh, the Combahee River area and say to enslaved people, if you would like to leave here, we will take you now. Um, and 700 people are rescued from enslavement um, during those two days of the Combahee River. Right. Um, uh, Harriet Tubman was a devout Christian. Um, she, she spoke in her autobiography of hearing from the Lord, of hearing from the Holy Spirit, and being led in all her actions um, by the Spirit of God. And she counts that as the reason that she was never captured or recaptured. Okay, I will stop there. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Gonna turn the video back on. Okay. Perfect. So thank you so much, Kaya. That was amazing. Uh, so now it will be a time of Q&A. And so how we'll do this is you can either raise your hand and um, I'll call on you, uh, or you could submit a question through the chat. Um, so yeah, any questions right now, feel free to ask them and then Kaya will answer them. Go for it, Kay. Hi, Kay. Am I am I back? I've lost the picture, but anyway, um, can you? Is it uh, the best way to to learn about Harriet Tubman? Is it through her autobiography, or is there a good biography of her out? That's an excellent question. Um, she has several versions of her autobiography, and she she wrote it through an amulusis. I, I think that's a good place to start. I do think there's a new biography out. Um, can I email you or email Nikki and then she'll let you know because I don't know the title of it. Off. Sure, sure. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I think it was published maybe four or five years ago. Let me see if this is the one, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but there's, um, if you put in uh, into Google, UNC and Harriet Tubman, um, University of North Carolina has gathered hundreds and hundreds of uh, documents, almost all of the slave narratives that were written by African-Americans during the 18th and 19th oh. centuries. And so you can get it for free um, on the UNC website, her autobiography. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know this one. I don't know if it's good. But there's one by Catherine Clinton. So there's a biography okay. by Catherine Clinton. I don't know if it's good. I can't find the one I was thinking of, but definitely start with her autobiographies. Okay. Oh, and the movie is excellent. The movie Harriet, have you seen it? Yes, no. it was great. Yeah, oh, okay. Just to start as well. And I think that I was kind of um, talking about my concern and how Black abolitionist Christianity is often downplayed. That was one of the rare examples in pop culture where they take her Christianity seriously. Um, so that was really encouraging to see in the book. Mm -hmm. Great. Other questions or comments? Thank you. So uh, wonderful history there. And um, I'm just wondering, do you see the same attitudes today that are rooted in the, the attitudes you were just talking about in toward race and slavery? That's toward slavery because it doesn't exist, but is it racially, do you see that same thing happening today? That's an excellent question. Um, I was struck, I think, especially the last couple of years by how the rhetoric that I was hearing in the 21st century press and the, by 21st century politicians and thought leaders and religious leaders, how it sounded so much like the language of the 1850s. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, so, so I do see a lot of resonance in the rhetoric, but the more I read, actually, I see the same thing in the 1890s. Um, and then even in the 1950s. 
So I do think that there is some kind of a kind of core kernel of um, misinterpretation or kind of flawed exegesis that that's stuck in our, our kind of uh, Christian discourse. And I don't know how to get it out, right? So I, I definitely do hear those echoes. It's not the same thing, but it, but it's it feels like a kind of a, yeah, echoes of it. Okay, yeah. And I, I think, I think I see that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it really scares me. <laughs> I know, I, I don't know what to do about it either, you know? It's so ingrained and it seems like people grow up with it. And I don't know, this, it seems almost intractable, but I, but I, I just, oh, I, see, I see a lot of hope in the younger people having different attitudes. Yeah, I do as well. When, when I think about my students, it gives me a lot of hope. Um, and when I think about all these abolitionists who came before, right, especially people like Benjamin Lay and uh, Thomas Clarkson and Harriet Tubman, who basically were doing things that did not make a lot of sense if you were concerned about your own well-being, right? Um, but who through their actions were able to kind of move people into a different way of thinking and acting. And although that was not uh, a kind of permanent space, possibility. What I find, um, especially during the Civil War, this is the time where there's the most uh, kind of ambivalence in the nation about slavery and the most promise. That sounds really maybe dark, um, but in terms of like the possibility of, of true, truly imagining Black people as fully human as um, capable of citizenship rights and as uh, deserving of not being enslaved. Uh, the energy during the Civil War era concerning these three things is, is so inspiring, but what's so scary is it happens in the midst of the worst war we've ever had. So much so that if you add the, um, the dead Americans of every other war together, World War I, World War II, Korean War, all the wars we've ever been in together, it barely exceeds that, that a mass of numbers barely exceeds the amount of civil war did. And I'm like, could we do all that energy and all that changing and all that kind of moving, but do it peacefully? <laughs> and then I, I take um, heart from the fact that, yeah, during the civil rights movement, we did. There was a lot of violence, but, but it was not a war. Um, so, so I, I do remain hopeful when I kind of think about the, the saints of the past, um, the work that they did um, and how it did affect change. And then it makes me think about, like, okay, but these, these kind of like pro-slavery ideas, these pro-segregation ideas, these kind of like uh, regressive, what I think of as regressive ideas keep popping up. So, okay, so we always have to be doing this work every generation. Um, and that makes me a little sleepy and tired, but but it still does make me hope because when I look at the different other generations, it's like okay, well they were able to make gains. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I it seems like you mentioned another year eight in the eighteen nineties. I'm I'm wondering if each time <clears throat> that that there's something inherent about white supremacy and or slavery that's that's so much a part of America's early character that it has residual that carries on and it really rears its ugly head very prominently when there's a shift towards recognizing how deeply sinful our national character is. I mean, that, that like with the um, rise of civil rights that then there was more um, overt action or verbiage, national verbiage about, you know, we are supreme, you know, whites are, whites are supreme and deserve a supreme place. And even now that it just seems like it's a counterbalance. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you, Sarah, for that question. Um, so I'll answer it two ways. Uh, the first way is I think there's a way in which, okay, so a lot of scholars now are saying that white supremacy is not something that only white people benefit from. Um, people who are adjacent to whiteness benefit from it as well. And I, I think there's ways in which if we can kind of imagine white supremacy as this desire for, for safety, um, for kind of economic security, um, for kind of a, a sense of, of kind of stability, right? Uh, it, it's easier maybe to understand people who kind of serve the purposes of white supremacy instead of demonizing them. It's, it's easier to kind of understand their motivations maybe. Um, so, so that's the way I'm thinking about it now, right? White supremacy is not so much like, oh, these wicked people who want to be better than everyone else. It's people who want to be safe and secure and, and prosperous. Um, and what that means in the system we have now is maintaining this system that we have now. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, especially if you wanna be assured of your continued prosperity and safety, um, Oh, shoot, I forgot the second thing. Sarah, could you repeat your question? <laughs> well, I was wondering if the rise of, of notions of white supremacy are, are linked with yes. rise of, of need for more justice or recognition that, that we do exist with white supremacy. Yes, thank you for that. Um, some of the... Um, reading I've been doing in early US history of particularly a book called, um, I don't know the name of the book, but the writer is Catherine Gerbner. And um, she came to visit Westmont a couple of years ago. So if you're interested in what I'm about to say, you can Google Catherine Gerbner Westmont. And if you don't find it, let me know. She gave a, a really cool hour long talk. She also has a book about this topic. Um, so Gerbner argues that in the kind of founding decades of what would later become the United States in the 1620s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, we have something called Christian supremacy. And she argues that Christian supremacy actually um, preceded white supremacy and that Christian supremacy intertangled with and morphed into white supremacy. So for her, when we think about white supremacist ideals and values. Um, we can't think about them apart from US Christian ideals and values. And if that's true, I think what it requires is a kind of interrogation of Christian ideals and values um, to disentangle them from white supremacist ideals and values. Um, and I think what that would take is the work of the Holy Spirit in us and revival. And then Grace has a question. Go for it, Grace. Hi, Kaya. Thank you so much for your presentation. Uh, this content is so important and I learned so much. Um, a couple things. I wanted to say I really appreciate you like keeping the quotes, the air quotes around Christian and like making that point of of no, these people were Christians. I have found that the what she did in that video, it, it comes across to me as like an attempt to rewrite history and, and people who... Oh, Grace, we lost you. Oh, she's frozen. Sad. Um... Oh, no. Maybe, maybe she could type her question into the chat. Yeah, I'll, I'll chat with her. Yeah, Grace, if you can hear us, could you type your question? Well, while we're getting Grace's question, I found that this, this um, kind of dismissing of 19th century thinkers who hold obviously wrong ideas we look at it now and we're like, oh, that's silly. That's obviously wrong. It happened in science as well, right? Uh, we, we talk about the pseudoscience of scientific racism. 
these people were the, the most respected scientists of their day. Uh, people like Louis Agassiz, who argued that uh, Black people came possibly from a different strain of humanity and therefore were not like other human beings. Um, Louis Agassiz wasn't just some, some quack. He had a, a chair job at Harvard. <laughs> one of the most well-respected scientists of the time, right? So I think when we're looking back, it's easy to think, oh, of course, this ridiculous idea was held by a ridiculous marginal person. No, um, these, these ideas were held by um, the most powerful, well-respected people of their time. Hey, Grace. Hi, sorry, I don't know what happened. I got kicked out. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm on my phone now. Um, the other thing... I wanted to um, mention was, I can't remember who asked this question, but it was along the lines of, do we still see some of the slaveholder religion phenomenon today? Um, and I would just say that I see it so prominently today. Um, and that has, has caused me to distance myself from the white evangelical church in the past um, few years. So my question for you, Kaya, is kind of like, how do you reconcile um, your Christian faith with the historical reality of slaveholder religion um, that keeps you there and keeps you um, in the faith, in the church, and um, you know, being a conduit of it continuously? Yeah. Thank you for that question, Grace. I think that I am of Douglas, right? It doesn't present a cognitive dissonance for me because I look at it and I'm just like, that's not the way I see it, <laughs> right? The Jesus that I love um, wants all of his people to be free in body, soul, mind, and spirit. Um, and I, you know, I kind of find myself feeling empathy a kind of strange mix of empathy and anger and fear towards fellow Christians who hold these slaveholding ideas. Honestly, it's, it's very complicated for me, but it doesn't necessarily inhibit my ability to love Jesus and to call myself a Christian um, because I am so convinced that Jesus loves me just as much as he loves everyone else, that it doesn't, uh, there's no cognitive dissonance. Now, in terms of like social, like like who do I worship with, what that looks like, I'm, I'm struggling there, honestly, mm -hmm. it's hard. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there, I kind of think about, the kind of networks and, and the activism that black folks were doing through the church um, since we got here. And I take a lot of heart from that. And so this isn't to suggest that the black church is this perfect entity, um, but it is to, to kind of suggest that the black church has been thinking about these problems for a long time um, and are similarly assured of God's love for them. And I take a lot of heart from that. It's like, okay, there's all these black Christians from all kinds of walks of life who love Jesus and have found a way to grow in Christ. Um, and I can do it too. And then the third thing I would say is uh, what Harriet Tubman credits, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Ghost working in me. I know that Christ is real because he told me. <laughs> he told me so. Um, so for, for all those reasons, I feel like my own faith, it feels pretty kind of safe and sacrosanct. But in terms of like how I deal with and socialize and commune with other Christians who have either slaveholding religion ideas or um, find themselves being uh, swept into, you know, whether they, they want to or not, these white supremacist ways of being and knowing. I find myself um, kind of approaching them with a mix of like empathy, anger, and fear. And I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> thanks, Kaya. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so much, Kaya. Um, I think that's will kind of be the end for today because it's 12.07. Thanks for spending a little more time with us. Uh, but I ask the encounter speakers just to um, pray a blessing over us, if you would, um, or just a word of prayer. 
however the spirit leads to close. Um, and again, we are so thankful. Um, and this is recorded. Yeah, everyone give a hand for Kaya. Amazing. And we know how, yeah, how much work you put into this. And so go ahead and pray. And then this will be recorded and we'll, we'll post it. Thank you, Nikki, for inviting me. This was more, more fun than I thought. I thought I'd be more nervous, but I wasn't. Praise God. Okay, um, please bow your heads with me. Lord God, we thank you for, um, for the time to gather together in your name uh, to learn more about who you are and who your people are, Lord. We just pray um, that your Holy Spirit would provide us with wisdom and with comfort, Lord. Um, that in these times, Lord, where we see so many echoes of uh, the problematic ideals and values of the past kind of creeping into our own time, uh, we just pray that you would help us to remember that you are sovereign, Lord. You, you have already beaten sin, death, hell, and the grave. And we just pray that you would help us to sit in that truth and to seek your face above all other things. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you Thank all. Thank you, Kaya. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye.